Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you that you have sent forth your Son, the Lord Jesus, and he has purchased us by his blood. And death and judgment did not defeat him, but he has triumphed over the grave. He has ascended, and we, by grace, through faith, will rise with him. And until that day, Lord, we pray, speak, and help us to hear that while we wait, we may do the things that you have called us to do. Not to earn your favor or to keep your favor, but to worship you, our God and our King. Be with us this morning as we look at this first instruction from Paul to Timothy, from you to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. There's much that could be said about verses 1 and 2, and we really uh, don't have time to, to get into these verses today. Um, suffice it to say that what those verses tell us, and much more, but they tell us that this is a letter written by Paul with the authority of Jesus Christ. He has been sent by Jesus Christ, that's what it means to be an apostle. He has apostolic authority, not because he wanted it, but because God commanded it. This is not a man-made apostleship. His authority is not his own. It's the authority of Jesus Christ. So the things that Paul has written to Timothy come to Timothy and the church at Ephesus and to every church since that time with the full authority of the head of the church, Jesus Christ. So would his grace, the grace of God, be with us? Would his peace be with us. And then look at the word in between grace and peace. Paul always says grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But look at that, this word in the middle, mercy. And we need his mercy, just as Timothy needed his mercy. Uh, establishing the church in accordance with the vision of God himself requires mercy because it's a tough assignment. It is a tough assignment for a group of people to gather together and say, you know what, our number one aim or objective here is not to be pleasing to the world or to be pleasing to ourselves, but to be pleasing to the Lord. We need God's mercy because we are going to receive opposition from without and from within. There's going to be people without who oppose us as we try to implement God's vision for his church. And the hard truth that we're going to learn today, there's going to be people within who oppose a desire to implement God's instructions for his church. So would the mercy of God that Paul extended to Timothy be also with us? Because this is a tough assignment. If I was to ask you what's the difference or what's the same and what's the difference between a mousetrap and a deadbolt lock, what would you say? I mean, this is a kind of an unfair question because there's so many things. What's the same? Both a mousetrap and a deadbolt you, you put in or on your house to protect your house. 
But they're very different, right? Because a deadbolt is for outside intruders. A mousetrap is for those intruders who are already inside. So you have threats. We know that about our houses. We have threats outside of our homes. And so if we lock our doors, we lock them in order to keep the outside threats outside. But sometimes the threat gets inside, and so we need to set a mousetrap if the threat is an infestation of mice. Now you might say, well, you know, those are two very different threats, and that's true. Uh, a burglar could do more harm than a mouse, potentially, I suppose, unless you get a lot of mice, uh, or you have a really nice burglar. So, you know, variables. But, but that's not always the case, right? We have internal threats that, that are more serious than mice. Uh, you might have uh, mildew or mold that could be deadly. Carbon monoxide, undetected, is deadly. These are internal threats that are probably more deadly than external threats. And yet they're harder to detect. It's easier to tell if somebody breaks into your house. It's harder to detect. Has a mouse got into the house? Has, is there uh, mildew or mold in the places in your walls that you can't see, is there a carbon monoxide leak? Without the right detection, and it's hard to detect them, these things are deadly. So it is with the internal threats to the church. And I just want to set the stage for what we're about to talk about. The, the external threats are obvious, right? There are people who oppose the gospel. Those are obvious threats. And, and that can be deadly, in our cultural context, it's not normally. The, the biggest threat from outside is ridicule. Or maybe you might not get the promotion, which is a significant threat. Uh, not many of us have shed our blood for the gospel, if any. But the internal threats, false teaching is eternally deadly. And if it's not detected, if it's not dealt with, if it's not rooted out of the church, then we have eternal life and eternal death hanging in the balance. And one of my fears, I love Canada, so just know that. I love, there's so many good things about our culture, but just as if you go overseas and you are aware of the strengths and weaknesses of other cultures, it's important that we're aware of strengths and weaknesses of our own culture. One of the strengths of our culture, I suppose, is that we are, are very polite. We, can, we, we try to be very nice, but that has a real dark underbelly to it in the church. Because sometimes it's not very nice to detect an internal threat in the church. It doesn't feel like we're being very Canadian, even though we're being very loving to the person who's in error and also to the rest of the church. But to identify false teaching, false doctrine, and then to deal with it, either by correction or by removing the people from the church, is essential if we are going to do what God has called us to do. Last week we learned that Paul wrote to Timothy so that we might know how we ought to behave in the household of God. Uh, that was the very constructive purpose statement for First Timothy and for the pastoral epistles. Today we get a second purpose statement for this letter, and it's more reactive. But it's very important. The first instruction given to the church in the pastoral epistles, it's 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, 
is this. Teach the truth. If you're going to do what I want you to do, if you're going to be who I want you to be, says the Lord Jesus Christ, you must teach the truth. Take a look. This passage then, which runs from verse 3 down to the end of verse 20, can be divided into three main sections. And it's divided by the word charge. Just take a look at, at this with me. Look at verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. I charge you, therefore, to teach the truth and to make sure that everyone else is teaching the truth. Now go down to verse 5. The aim of our charge is love. So, so why am I charging you to make sure that you're teaching the truth and everyone else is teaching the truth? It's because we are trying to help people to learn the truth so that they can love. And then go to verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good Warfare. This is serious business. This is not a secondary charge. This is my very first instruction to the church, says the Lord Jesus Christ through the Apostle Paul. Teach the truth. And we see this is how our, we're going to be structured. So we have three main sections. We have verses 3 and 4. Then we have verses 5 through 17. It's a long section. We're going to see how that all hangs together. And then we have the third section, which is verses 18 to 20. And these three sections are built around this charge that we teach the truth. Now, there are three parts to this instruction that we teach the truth. The first one we'll answer in this first section. And this answers what? What does it mean to teach the truth? What are the implications? What is it exactly that we need to do? if we are going to implement this instruction. The second part is why. Why is this so important? So that, that is really what section, the, verse, the section that starts in verse 5 and runs through to the end of verse 17 answers is why. Why is it so important that we teach the truth? And then the third part is verses 18 to 20. How? How are we going to fulfill this charge? How are we going to make sure that we are a church that teaches the truth? So section one, what? What is this instruction to teach the truth? Well, it includes an exhortation to refute bad doctrine. That's section one. Section two, why do we have to teach the truth and refute bad doctrine? Because bad doctrine cannot produce love. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but we'll get into that. Bad doctrine cannot. It's impossible. Bad doctrine cannot produce love. And then the third section, how are we going to do this? Well, we're going to wage war. That's a very aggressive image. We're going to wage war with faith and a good conscience. Let's take a look at these three sections in order. So the instruction is to teach the truth. Now we're going to talk about what exactly that means, 
why it's important and how we're going to do it. So number one, what, is it, what does it mean to teach the truth? Well, it includes this charge that we have to be ready to refute bad doctrine. Now, now uh, youth, if you've got your, your notes there, just cross out that first fill in the blank and put refute bad doctrine. I've changed the wording. Refute bad doctrine. Let's take a look again at verses three to four. Paul says, as I urged you, it's a strong word. I'm urging you. This is not just some request. You know, it might be nice, Timothy, if you stick around at Ephesus. They could really use a pastor. No, I am urging you with everything I've got and all of the authority that the Lord Jesus Christ has given to me. I'm going to Macedonia because the Lord has something for me to do there. But I'm urging you, Timothy, stay here. Remain at Ephesus. Why? So that you may charge... Charge is also a strong word, right? This is not a, a recommendation. I recommend that you teach the truth. No, I am charging you with the authority of Paul, which is the authority of Jesus Christ. Make sure your teaching aligns with the truth. Charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now, there's a lot there. What I want us to do is just go through and, and make sure that we understand what is being said here. I want you to charge certain persons. Paul's being a bit vague there, isn't he? Who are these certain persons? Are they elders? Are they preachers? Are they teachers? We don't know. Now, at the end of the chapter, we know that Paul has already dealt with Alexander and Hymenaeus. Now, we might imagine that they were potentially elders or, or self-appointed leaders in the church. They probably had a platform to teach. And so before Paul left, Paul already dealt with them. I've already kicked out Alexander and Hymenaeus. I've, I've booted them out of the church. But the work is not done. So I want you to go around and charge certain persons. That is, anybody who is wielding any kind of influence. It doesn't have to be somebody that stands at the front on a Sunday morning. Anybody who is influencing anyone. And just so you know, this, all of us influence one another. So, so this is charge everyone in the church according to the measure of influence that they have. You have influence in this church. The things that you believe influence other people. It comes out in the way you live your life. It comes out in the way you speak. It comes out in, in the thoughts that you have. So this is not just for me as a teacher in the church. This is for all of us. Make sure that certain persons, that is anyone, all of us, that none of us teaches any different doctrine. What does any different doctrine mean? Well, it's actually quite simple. Any different doctrine. Anything that is contrary to the gospel. Any, anything that is not in keeping with uh, the gospel. And, and one way that we could think about it is any message, any teaching, any interpretation that does not ultimately affirm that we are saved by grace alone, by faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone, is teaching some different doctrine. The doctrine that we hold to must be undergirded by this firm belief that we are saved entirely by the grace of God. It's a gift, 
It cannot be earned. It cannot be maintained. And we receive this gift. We unwrap this gift, not by the things that we do, but by faith. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and we are saved. There is no other book, there's no other document that we can go to to receive the truth than the Bible. It's scriptures alone. Jesus Christ is the only one who lived a righteous life and was pleasing to God the Father. And it is his finished work that saves us. Christ alone saves. There's no other God, there's no other way, there's no other philosophy, there's no work that you and I can do. And everything that we teach ultimately must give and bring glory to God. If we are missing any of these five things, then we are teaching or we are embracing a different doctrine. So it's pretty wide. He then gets a little bit more specific. Take a look at verse 4. Nor are they to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Now what is this? Well, this is hard to understand. A myth is a legend, a falsehood. It's, it's not true. It's not rooted in history. And genealogies, what's wrong with genealogies? The Bible has genealogies. Is this permission then to just skip over genealogies in our read through the Bible in a year program? Oh, no genealogies? I won't read the genealogy? No, we, he's not against genealogies. In fact, there's some uh, manuscript evidence from ancient documents that said that about this time was when history writing as a genre was beginning to emerge. And and these new authors who considered themselves historians looked back at at other people who had wrote quote-unquote histories and some of their contemporaries who were writing quote-unquote histories and they said, oh, that's just myths and genealogies. So it was a way for, for Roman historians to say, no, Those are just myths and genealogies. Those are legends. They're not true. And and they're just genealogies. So it may be a turn of phrase that Paul is picking up here and say, what we need is the truth. There are books written about people in biblical genealogies that are not inspired by God. The book of Enoch, for example. Enoch was a real man. He's in the Bible, he's in a genealogy, but there's entire books that sort of develop into speculation what his life might have been like. Paul's saying, don't do that. Just stick with the scriptures. What the scripture says, that's where you go. It's the Bible and the Bible alone that teaches us the truth. Anything else is just myth and genealogy. So teach what accords with sound doctrine and rely on the Bible alone. Paul may here be thinking about a misuse of the Old Testament. What matters is that our teaching ought not to lead to endless speculations. That is, we have no idea what is true. What's true for you might be true for you. It's not true for me. That's your interpretation of the Bible, but not my interpretation of the Bible. Those are speculations. What Paul is here saying is what you need to do in all of your teaching is help to build up the faith of the church in the Lord Jesus Christ. So whatever passage of the Bible you're going to be using, make sure that it is helping to build up the faith of the church in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the stewardship from God that is by faith. He has entrusted the scriptures to us. We are to steward the truth revealed in the scriptures by faith. Faith in Jesus Christ unlocks this book. So the instruction is teach the truth. Well, what does that mean? Well, 
Positively, we, got, we have to speak the truth. We have to teach the truth. We need to be devoted to the truth. In a more negative sense, we need to be aware that there's going to be people in the local church who don't know the truth, are not speaking the truth, are not teaching the truth. And, and depending on the level of influence that that person has, you start with the most influential and then you work down to the least influential. But anyone who is wielding any kind of influence when they are teaching any different doctrine that leads to speculations rather than faith in Jesus Christ, you need to deal with it. You need to refute it. The goal is that the person would receive that correction humbly and change their position. But if not, as we're going to see, you have to remove the person from the church. So what is this instruction? Be devoted to the truth, teach the truth, and refute bad doctrine. And I say, well, why? Why is this instruction number one for the church? The reason is bad doctrine cannot produce love. I don't know if we often put doctrine and love together. Uh, often what we do is we say, well, that's just head knowledge. That doctrine is head knowledge. It doesn't actually help me to love. Or we say, I can love without knowing very much. What Paul is saying here is that is absolutely a falsehood, a lie, and a myth. Talk about myths. It, good doctrine is necessary if we are going to love. Now, uh, to be clear, love has many different forms. The Greek language has four different words for love. The idea of love that Paul has in mind here is agape. Agape is this love that, that comes from God. It's the way in which God loves us. It's impossible for the world. The world, an unsaved person, cannot love the way God loves. But here's the mystery of the gospel that I just love. I didn't mean for that pun, but... Um, once we are saved through uh, faith in good doctrine, one of the gifts of our salvation is God empowers us to love as he loves. Bad doctrine cannot, it's impossible, produce love. Sound doctrine is required for love. It's, it's an ingredient in love. Without it, we cannot love the way God loves. Take a look at verses 5 through 7. The aim, that is the goal, the reason that I'm charging you with this, of our charge, what is the charge? Make sure that nobody is teaching any different doctrine. Make sure you're teaching the truth. So the aim of this is love, not knowledge. Will, will you get knowledge on the way to love? Yes. Love requires knowledge. We cannot love until we have the right knowledge about God, ourselves, and the gospel. But the goal of teaching is not knowledge. Knowledge is the first step on a path toward love. So the ultimate goal is not knowledge, it is love. And this love issues from, and we're going to see three things here, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Certain persons, so the same certain persons, this could be anybody, anyone who swerves from these, that is, uh, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, have wandered away into vain discussion. They may desire to be teachers of the law, 
without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So the false teachers, their goal is knowledge. But for those who are using doctrine in its right way, the goal is a knowledge that leads to love. You see the distinction there. Now, let's just unpack this. In order to understand what is it about sound doctrine that is necessary for love, we just have to look at the three things that, that issue forth love. A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. What is a pure heart? A pure heart is a regenerate heart. A regenerate heart is a heart that has been born again. Another way to say that, a, a, a regenerate heart or a pure heart, a heart that has been born again is a heart that has been circumcised. These are all images that mean the same thing. And there's a fifth one. A, a pure heart is a heart of flesh that has replaced a heart of stone. So, so the Bible has all these different ways of talking about what a pure heart is. What a pure heart is, is a transformed heart. See, an unsaved person, the sin sickness that, that is native to the human condition comes in and infects all of us, including our heart. Sin dwells in the heart of an unsaved person. A sin-sick heart can show forms of love, but a sin-sick heart cannot love the way God loves. You need a pure heart for that. You need a regenerate heart for that, a, a circumcised heart, a living heart. And so what happens is, when we are born again, God does something fabulous. He takes the sin and he cuts it out of our heart and nails it to the cross. That's the image of circumcision. That's what a circumcised heart is. The sin of your, of your heart is cut out and removed. Another way of, putting, of saying this is a pure heart is you have a heart of stone that's not beating. God takes that heart of stone out and he gives you a beating heart, a heart of flesh. These are powerful truths of the gospel, which means that it's the regenerate heart that is not infected with sin anymore that can love as God loves. Now, I know, I know what you're thinking. Well, I don't know if I have a pure heart. Because I still desire to sin. So how do I know if the sin sickness has been cut out of my heart? If you love the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're ready to die for the Lord Jesus Christ, if you want the Lord Jesus Christ to return, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. If you desire to see God, and that desire is informed by the gospel, then you have a pure heart. Which means that you have no sin sickness in your heart. The sin sickness is in your flesh. You still have a, a, a lingering sin nature. We call that the flesh. But you've been made obedient from the heart. That's Romans 6. So, so bad doctrine will not enable you to love because bad doctrine does not lead to a, a new birth. It does not lead to a circumcised heart. And therefore, bad doctrine just sort of cloaks your sin-sick heart and makes you feel that everything is good, but still it, the well is still poisoned and out from your heart still comes unclean thoughts and things that, from your mouth and desires. 
For th but for those of us who have been saved, we have a pure heart, and love comes from our heart, and sin comes from our flesh. So important that we understand this. And so good doctrine teaches about this, about the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we can actually give him our sins, so that our hearts can actually be circumcised. Bad doctrine never leads to that. It is the gospel of truth that brings about a regenerate heart. What about a good conscience? A good conscience is a, is a conscience that no longer feels guilty. And you say, well, I feel guilty all of the time. Or at least every day. And if not every day, at least every week. I still have a guilty conscience. And this is where good doctrine comes in. And we have to be reminded over and over and over again. We have been justified. We have been declared righteous. We are no longer condemned. We are no longer considered to be guilty of our sin. Why? Because Jesus has traded places with us. Our sin was imputed to him. His righteousness was imputed to us. And therefore, even while we lament and grieve with great sorrow over our lingering sin nature and the way that that manifests in our lives, we have a good conscience. We have a clean conscience because we know that no matter what we have done, We've been justified. We have been declared righteous. And so we need good doctrine. And here's why. A guilty conscience cannot love. Do you know what a guilty conscience does? A guilty conscience compares. I'm not, I don't, I, I feel bad about myself, but I'm not as bad as that person. That's not love. We look around and we say, I, I want to at least be better than someone. The other thing that a guilty conscience doesn't do is it doesn't respond to this gift of justification. See, love bursts forth in two ways. Number one, we say, oh God, you have justified me. I am now as righteous as I will ever be. You've declared me to be not guilty and that will never change. Therefore, I love you. And that is agape love when you respond to the doctrine of justification. And when you love God like that, all of a sudden the comparison game changes too. And you say, I, I've been justified not because I'm any better than anyone else, but because Christ has done it for me. Therefore, we can look at one another and I can say, yeah, you're pretty messed up or you're pretty messed up or you're pretty messed up, but so am I. Oh, I love you. In all of your sin and struggle and difficulty, I love you. Love me too in spite of me. Because we've got one Lord Jesus. My conscience is clear. I am free to love God in you. Let me help you to clear your conscience through the doctrine of justification. So you too can love God in one another. The third thing is a sincere faith. What is a sincere faith? A sincere faith is a real belief in Jesus Christ. Without a true, sincere faith in Jesus Christ, you cannot be born again. Therefore, you don't have a regenerate heart. And you, you cannot understand justification. Therefore, you need a sincere faith in order to be able to love. 
A pure heart that is no longer tainted with sin can love. A good conscience that has the right response to justification can love. A sincere faith that loves God and others because he first loved us can love. Therefore, good doctrine is necessary for love. And bad doctrine doesn't teach any of these things. Therefore, bad doctrine cannot give us the knowledge of the very things that are required so that we can love. Therefore, bad doctrine cannot produce love. What then can bad doctrine produce? Well, it's right here in the text. Take a look down here um, at the end of verse 6. Or let's look at all of verse 6. Certain persons, by swerving from these... That is a pure heart, teaching about a pure heart, teaching about a good conscience, and teaching about a sincere faith. They've swerved from these, and they've wandered away, not toward love. They've continued to build up their knowledge, but this knowledge is leading them where? Not toward love, but toward vain discussion. What is vain discussion? Vain discussion is anything that leads anywhere other than love. Any discussion that you're having about any doctrine or philosophy or worldview that does not ultimately lead us to the doctrines that undergird the ability to love is vain. It's useless. It serves no purpose. It has no function in the church. It always has to be leading us back to love. And these people who, whose goal is knowledge and not love, they've begin, begun to stir up vain discussion. And look at what Paul says about them. They desire something. They desire to be teachers of the law. And yet they don't understand what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now this is important. What does Paul mean about the law? Well, he's specifically thinking about the old covenant, the old covenant law. But it could be more broad than this, and this is important. There are two kinds of religions in the world. I use religion uh, in both a positive and a negative sense. There is a the grace-based religion, which is, there's only one, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a grace-based religion. Best sense of the word religion. Every other religion, whether it's uh, these teachers of the law who are stuck in the old covenant, uh, Judaism without the promise of grace, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, secular humanism, doesn't matter what it is, Every other religion, philosophy, worldview approach to life and reality is legalism. So you have grace or legalism, grace or law. Good, true good doctrine leads us to grace, bad religion, bad doctrine, false teaching leads us to some form of legalism. What is legalism? Legalism, put very plainly, is just this. The idea that anything that we think, say, or do will somehow give us any kind of merit before others or before any kind of deity. To put it in in the context of the church, legalism creeps in when we think that anything that we think, feel, say, or do gives us any kind of right standing before God. That's legalism. And these false teachers are always going to be inclined toward some kind of legalism. 
some kind of legalism that says you have to do this, whatever it is. If you're not doing this, then your salvation is in jeopardy. God does not love you. The salvation that you started with faith is not being maintained or cultivated or looked after. And what we learn at the very beginning here of the book of 1 Timothy is there is no room for legalism in Christ's church. Because legalism will never lead to love. Ever. Even when it seems like it's leading to love, it is not leading to love. It is leaving, leading to some kind of performance-based religion. Self-pleasing. Certain persons, not seeking love as their ultimate goal, have fallen into legalism. Now, does that mean that the law is bad? No. And now we're going to transition. I'm going to go over this really quick, and I'm going to trust that you're going to talk about this in your discipleship groups. But these next two sections or subsections, verses 8 through 11 and then 12 through 17, are just going to tease this out for us. That good doctrine uh, is a gospel-based doctrine that leads to love. Bad doctrine is a legalistic doctrine that leads to vain discussions. So let's take a look at the first one. Now we know, we're going to read verses 8 through 11. What I want you to see here is the misuse of the law. Now we know that the law is good if, there's a big if, if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexually, homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. That's sort of a catch-all. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now this is a very complicated paragraph. What, what in, in, the, in the world is Paul trying to say? He's, he's saying, we're not trying to say that you can never talk about the law. But let's use the law lawfully. What does he mean by that? Well, if you just read verse 8 and 11, this whole passage makes a lot more sense. Read, read verse 8 and 11 with me. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Go down to verse 11. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. How do you properly use the law? Well, you use the law in accordance with the gospel. Of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. How do you use the law within the context of the gospel? What is the function of the law in the gospel? If you're going to teach the gospel, what role does the law play? That's what Paul is saying. If you use the law in any way other than the way in which the law informs our understanding of what the gospel is, then you are using the law improperly. That is leading to vain discussion and legalism, which will never lead to love. Those are false teachers that need to be 
dealt with. Whether they're standing at the front or they're in a living room, they have to deal with it. So what is this right use of the law in a proper understanding of the gospel? What is the function of the law? What is the lawful use of the law? Number one, I'm just going to give you two things. The law reveals our sin. The law, if you read through the old covenant law and you apply it to your life, there's only one conclusion that you can come to. Guilty. Guilty. Now that's a pretty bad place to end, but that's where the false teachers end. You're not doing what the law says. Therefore, you are guilty. Therefore, do better. Therefore, be better. And what that does is that just puts this heavy, heavy, heavy burden on our shoulders. And I am weighed down by this legalistic teaching. And I am trying to get through life. And I stumble and I fall under the weight of the law. And then I see somebody breaking the law and I say, you're not keeping the law either. Did you not know that the law says that you must do this and you're not doing it? And then I take, put a heavy load on that person and they buckle under the weight of the law. And before you know it, you've got a whole church that has fallen down under the weight of the law. Can that group of people love God? Who's just dropped the law on them? Certain judgment and condemnation is coming? No. So that can't be the full extent of the function of the law. The law, after condemning us, drives us to Christ. The law drives us to Christ because here we have Jesus comes along and he says, Come to me if you're weary. Come to me if you're heavy laden. And I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What he does is he comes and he takes the law off your shoulder. And he puts it on his own shoulders. He goes to the next person. He takes the law off those shoulders. And he puts it on his own shoulders. And he carries the law he carries our condemnation. He carries our sin and he nails it to the cross. That's the right use of the law. It produces a people that cry out for mercy, for grace, for salvation. They say, oh God, I am a sinner. I deserve death. I should be condemned, but... Have mercy. Take my sin. Don't condemn me. And God says, okay. And he pours out his wrath on Jesus on the cross. And we're forgiven. And we are justified. And as we are justified, that is, we are declared not guilty. We are declared to be righteous. And at the same time, God cuts the sin out of our hearts so that at the center of your soul, you don't desire to sin anymore. And you desire to be righteous. And you hate your own sin. 
Now that group of people can love. That group of people can love. So that's what that whole section is about. And he gives all these uh, examples of the law just condemns people. It's a paraphrase of the Ten Commandments. You, I'll leave that to you to go through and find the Ten Commandments there. Now we're not done. We're still on this, Paul's sort of teasing out why good doctrine is so important. And then after reflecting on the end of bad doctrine and the end of good doctrine, he reflects it on himself. And this next section from verses 12 to 17, basically what he is saying is, look, I, I am one who knows what he is speaking of. I was the false teacher. I was the legalist who was weighed down under the weight of the law, and I devoted myself to weighing everyone else under the weight of the law, and I condemned people, I persecuted people, I killed people who preached this grace. So I know what I'm talking about. This is not some abstract, impersonal teaching moment. I've gone from death to life. I've gone from legalism to grace. That's what this is all about. I want you to hear Paul saying, I've learned how to love. Look at verse 12 to 17 with me. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, I was an insolent opponent. Oh, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Oh, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you see what he's doing here? He's saying to Timothy, look, you're going to confront some people, and they're bad, they're dangerous, but I was worse. I was worse. So even with these false teachers, approach them in love, give, extend to them the, the, the love and the faith of Christ Jesus, just as that grace overflowed for me. Allow it to overflow for them. But did you see what he said right above that? Take a look at verse um, 14, uh, sorry. Right halfway through verse 13, I receive mercy. Why? Halfway through verse 13, because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. I didn't know any better. And when the Lord Jesus revealed himself to me, then I knew better, and I responded. What, what Paul is saying there is, on the one hand, Extend love and grace and patience, but 
once you show them the truth, they can no longer claim to be acting ignorantly in unbelief. You show them good doctrine. You show them the right teaching. And if they still resist you, they're not acting ignorantly in unbelief. Therefore, there comes a time, there comes a point, oh, Canadian Christians, when mercy ends and discipline begins for the good of the church. Show mercy. But when someone ceases to act out of ignorance and unbelief, when they have all of the knowledge that they need of good doctrine, then you must act decisively. But let us not ever think that anyone is beyond the reach of Jesus Christ. For Paul has been put forward as an example. The chief opponent of Christ in the church had become an apostle of the Lord Jesus. A Pharisee of Pharisees had become a champion for the gospel of grace. And so it is possible for any and for all. You see in verse 7 just a, a beautiful doxology where you see that, that good doctrine leads to love. That verse 17 is all about the love that Paul has for God. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Why? Because I've been justified. I've been saved. So that's that second part. It's long, right? But the whole point is, why does the truth matter? Because it's only the truth that leads to love. Agape love. Which means we can have no room for legalism. We can be patient to a point. We can show mercy and grace. But we cannot tolerate legalism in this church. Because legalism kills. We come to our, the last section. How are we going to fulfill this instruction? Verse 18 through 20. Take a look at it. This charge. What's the charge? Teach the truth. Refute bad doctrine. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. How are we going to implement this instruction to, to teach the truth? Well, there's three parts. There's one overarching part and then two that fall underneath it. We are going to wage war against bad doctrine. Uh, that is an aggressive image, isn't it? I mean, why couldn't he have come up with something a little bit kinder, a little bit sweeter, a little bit gentler? Because this is war. In war, there are great consequences. Everybody knows that, right? You can play sports. Like football is like war, but it's not because it's just a sport. So you have sports, then you have war. It's just so much more serious. We know that in war, life and death are in the balance. 
Uh, depending on how well you wage the war, you might die or live. The people you love might die or live. We're not playing games in the church. And, and, and just sort of putting a blind eye to, to legalism and bad doctrine or trying to be kind and nice and merciful. We're not playing games because eternal life and eternal death hang in the balance. If you get the doctrine wrong, you're not saved and you can't live forever with Christ. It's serious. So we wage war, and that's, that's why Paul uses that imagery. It's, it's serious, and there are casualties. We need to be strategic, intentional. You know, what if nations went to war the way the church in North America does, quote-unquote, church? Would you send an army overseas with the kind of preparation that the average Christian in Canada has received? No, when we're at war, we all know, all hands on deck, this is serious. That's life in the church. Whether you like it or not, once you have put your faith in Christ, you are at war. And so we need to take it very seriously. Now, how are we going to wage this war? Paul just gives us two things. Look at verse 19. Faith and a good conscience. You know how you wage this war? You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you remember that you've been justified. If at any time you forget your justification, then the legalists have won. You must, if you're going to wage this war, Paul says, you must always remember the doctrine of justification. What is the doctrine of justification? We have been declared righteous. Jesus took our sin and gave us his righteousness. If we forget that, we've already lost. Because without that, every road leads to legalism. So faith, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel, and a good conscience. You have those things, and you are fully equipped to wage this war. All you need then is courage. I want you to see, to close our time, some of the casualties of war. By rejecting this, what? Faith in a good conscience. By, by rejecting the true teachings about Jesus Christ and the doctrine of justification, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Another devastating image. They're sailing along. Everything looks fine. They hit the rocks. Anyone who is stuck in legalism is like a ship that has run aground on a rock. And Paul says, when you see that that is the case, do what I have done. I've already done it to Alexander and Hymenaeus. I have kicked them out of the church. That's what it means to hand someone over to Satan. I have removed them from the church. Why does Paul do this? That's not very nice. That's not very kind. It's extremely loving. You don't often think about this as loving, but discipline must be done in love. Even removing somebody from the church must be done in love. How in the world is that loving? Well, I'll tell you what's not loving. Let it, allowing uh, Hymenaeus and Alexander to keep 
keep on keeping on in the church. Then they die and meet the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, depart from me for I never knew you. It's not loving. It's nice. It gets rid of some of the perceived conflict in the immediate. But it's not loving, not at all. And you allow people, though they've made shipwreck of their faith, to, to just sort of keep on sailing. But what Paul says, if you really want to be loving, you remove them from the church. You say, until you sort out your doctrine, until you understand that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone, then there's no use you wasting your time here. You are not ready to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. When you learn to stop blaspheming, then you can come back. That's loving. This is hard. This is the first instruction to the church because we are en route to the eternal promised land and not everyone will make it. Rather seem unkind today if that perceived unkindness leads to eternal salvation. I would rather be a pastor who pastors in love than to be well-liked. And I hope that we as a group could say the same. In closing, this first instruction to the church on the surface seems simple. But it's not as simple as it may seem. The instruction is simply this. Teach the truth. Refute bad doctrine. I want you to notice something. There's 16 instructions to the church in 1 Timothy in only six chapters. This first instruction occupied one whole chapter. Do you think the Lord feels that this instruction is important? Without this, nothing else matters. I'm going to pray for us. I pray for you and your groups. We are a church that embraces sound doctrine. And if we do, we will love God and we will love one another. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I thank you for this instruction to teach the truth. I pray that you would help us. Uh, help us to identify what is true and not true. I pray that our instruction, whether it be from the front on a Sunday morning or in our discipleship groups or over a, a table sharing coffee with one another or in the hallway or whatever it is, that all of our instruction would be rooted in the true gospel, that we would use the law lawfully as it drives us to Christ for salvation. I pray for each person here. If there's anyone here who is trapped in legalism unknowingly, I pray that you would liberate them by your mercy and your kindness just as you liberated Paul as an example for all who were to believe. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.